right, thanks. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Pastor Roger, for leading us in those songs. And yeah, uh, yeah, we'll go ahead and uh, we'll go ahead and get started. Well, I know it's kind of been a while um, ever since we started going through First John. Um, you know, we started a while back, and then you know we had to take a break. And for the past month or so, you know, we've been able to resume our study. Uh, so thank you, all you guys, for riding along with us through the ups and downs and you know at this point I was really hoping and I think probably you guys were too that by this time um, that we'd be back together at church uh, worshiping and fellowshipping with uh, each other um, and I thought that it would be pretty close but I was really hoping that you know I would get to actually um, speak to you guys in person um, but it's you know, disappointing that, you know, that we can't do it that way. But I do want to say that, you know, for Tiff and myself, um, we've been really encouraged by the turnout each and every Friday night. You know, we're looking through the uh, participants, uh, the number of participants, and we're just really thankful that, you know, just so many of you guys are uh, here each and every Friday night. You know, yeah, I could be doing other stuff, but, you know, that's okay. You know, just seeing you guys just knowing that you guys are around is just a great comfort to us. Um, but before we get into our passage tonight, I wanted to go ahead and bring us back to the beginning of First John uh, and look at First John uh, chapter one, verses one through three. And so this is what it reads. It says, uh, "From or what was from the beginning, we have heard, we have seen with our eyes, we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life." And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you, too, may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So... Uh, why did John write this letter in the first place? Um, we see in the beginning that he mentions that he wanted to proclaim to the church the eternal life who is Jesus Christ. And then he also says that he wants them to have fellowship with him and fellow believers and ultimately fellowship with God. And so from there, John has shown everyone who really has read this letter, uh, including us, right, that the life of a true Christian or what the life of a true Christian really should look like. Right? We ought to be loving God, obeying his commandments, uh, loving and caring for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Right? All of those are marks of those who possess eternal life and have true fellowship with God. And so hopefully throughout uh, our studies here in First John, uh, you've been challenged to test the authenticity of your faith and also encouraged to find ways where you can better fulfill your calling as one who has faith in Christ. Um, and I did want to mention that as we get into our passage, um, this passage tonight, First uh, John 5, 5 through 12, it's filled with theology that is beyond what we can cover tonight. Um, and we're talking about the innermost workings of Christology, soteriology, pneumatology, uh, there's apologetics, and there's the Trinity. Right? I mean, there are just going to be things that we might just highlight, um, but we can't really get too deep into. Um, it's we were to go to the beach and try to empty the ocean with a thimble. Um, and that's okay. Um, this is the richness that is scripture and the vastness that is God. Um, but I hope that as we work our way through the passage that um, you'll uh, come to understand what John is saying here. Uh, so let's go ahead and bow for a word of prayer. Um, dear God, uh, we are just so thankful that uh, you have allowed us to gather here together um, to hear your word, uh, to hear your witnesses testify to your son. Uh, we thank you that through them, through you, uh, we can have the assurance of our salvation. And with the assurance of our salvation, uh, we can just better honor and worship and glorify you. Thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Um, so a rough outline for our passage tonight. Um, I'll just break it down into two parts for us. Um, the first is, number one, um, the witnesses or uh, 
of the testimonies. Uh, that's in verses five through nine. So the witnesses or the word witnesses or testimony, um, you're going to hear over and over in this passage. It's mentioned multiple times. Uh, it really refers to um, one or a testimony of that who has knowledge of something, um, just like you would think of as a, a witness in court uh, or someone who's testifying in court. Uh, and then uh, number two uh, is the verdict. Okay, so this is uh, verses uh, 10 through 12. So the witnesses and then the verdict. Uh, so I'll go ahead and read our passage for us now. Uh, and it says, Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, and the water and the blood and all three are in agreement if we receive the testimony of men the testimony of god is greater for the testimony of god is this that he has testified concerning his son the one who believes in the son of god has this testimony in in himself the one who does not believe god has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that god has given concerning his son and the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. So verse 5 uh, says, Who is the one who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So in last week's study, uh, we learned that whoever is born of God overcomes the world. And the one who can be born of God is the one who believes that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah. And the evidence that you are born of God, and the evidence that you are that you truly believe that Jesus is the Messiah, is your love for him. Now in verse 5, the one who overcomes is also the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Right? In verses 1 through 4, of chapter 5, the overcomer is the one who believes that Jesus is the Messiah. And then in our uh, verse in here, in verses in verse 5, um, the overcomer, John says, is the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So in order for you to be an overcomer, uh, meaning if you're going to be one who is able to have victory over the evil of this world, victory over the evil one of this world who is over this world, and if you're going to have victory over death, and if you remember the beginning of First John, which we just read, if you're going to have eternal life and eternal fellowship with God the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ, then you must believe in the work that's Jesus the Christ or his Messiahship and in the person that's his Sonship of Jesus Christ. And granted, even though these are separate titles or names, um, for Jesus, they can really be used interchangeably uh, in the sense that they're both tied together. And he can't be one and not be the other. He can't be the Messiah, but, you know, not be the Son of God. And, and the other way around, he can't be the Son of God, yet not be the Messiah. Um, but they do kind of establish uh, two different things in a sense where his Messiah, again, that's his, that's his work, and then his sonship, and that's his person. Um, and so if you remember, uh, it's generally agreed upon that John wrote this letter as a defense against false, the false teachings of Gnosticism, which was very popular and very rampant in their day. Now, if I could sum up Gnosticism briefly, um, basically they believed that salvation was obtained through like a special kind of experience or some sort of special knowledge. Right? They believed that the spiritual realm um, was where uh, the good and desirable would be found. Uh, and conversely, then, the physical realm um, was corrupt and just something to be done away with. Um, and that's kind of why they're known to refute the humanity of Jesus or the humanity of the Christ, because they just can't accept or do not want to accept that God would be associated with anything physical, like you know, a physical man. 
Now, with all this false teaching uh, swirling around the church and possibly, and maybe even very likely being in the church itself, because remember John said earlier that you know there were some that went out from us but were not really among us. Right? Uh, I hope you then can really appreciate why the early church might actually have doubts about whether or not they really knew who Jesus is um, and if maybe what the scriptures were saying were actually true. And I'm guessing that for all of us, no matter how long we've been Christians, um, we've had some points in our life too where we've had doubts creep in over our belief or uh, in the gospel or you know if the gospel is really true. And you know we might not have to combat Gnosticism um, like the church did back in John's day, um, but we're fighting against agnostics and those who promote a misguided version or even a false version of the gospel today. And so we might have doubts and we might have uncertainties, you know, and that happens from time to time uh, in our walk. Um, but how can you be sure that Jesus really is the Son of God? Um, so if you can imagine, um, if you can put yourself in a courtroom uh, right, you guys can imagine that you at some point you've probably seen it in TV shows or in movies, or maybe you've actually been in a courtroom yourself, um, serving in a jury, and hopefully you know not as the defendant, um, but you can picture it in your mind, right? You can picture the courtroom, and if you like, you know you can put yourself in the jury box, um, or you can you know be somewhere in the audience just watching this trial unfold. But wherever you are, it's like John is giving you a front row seat into this trial, which is set to determine this, right? Is Jesus really the Son of God? So the gavel drops, and the Apostle John comes up and says that he has three witnesses that will testify that beyond any doubt that Jesus is the Son of God. And so in verses 6, uh, it reads this, this is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with the water only, but with water and with the blood. It is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. It starts out with, John starts out with, this is the one, right, meaning that there is no other. The testimony of these three witnesses are going to show that there is only one who can be called the Son of God. There's no one else in history or eternity that can ever uphold the title of the Son of God except for Jesus Christ. Now, in all this epistle, um, there is maybe no greater interpretive issue than this, or at least this would be one of the greater ones, and some scholars say maybe even in the New Testament, uh, this is a challenging thing to interpret. Right? What is the water and what is the blood? And how do they provide conclusive evidence that Jesus is the Son of God? Right, there are a number of possibilities, um, but probably the three main interpretations, um, which we'll go over, but each of them, I do want to mention, are supported by some past and present giants of our faith. I mean, like Hall of Fame type giants, okay? To the point where if I said, that so-and-so believes in this view, then you'll be like, okay, he believes it, I believe it. I don't need to hear the evidence because so-and-so believes it. But in the next possible explanation or the next interpretation, I could say, well, so-and-so believes, or so-and-so and so-and-so -and -so believes this interpretation. And then you're like, okay, forget it. No, I'm believing this one. Okay, and then we have the third one. So, and, and we have others that believe that as well. So we can kind of, you got to get the picture of what's happening, right? Each and every possible, or these three possible explanations of what the water and blood are, are supported by you know, just very wise, very godly men, past and present. Um, so um, we will go over each of them. Um, and we'll start with the first one. Um, the first possible interpretation uh, is that the water and the blood refer to the ordinances of the church, uh, baptism and communion. Um, there's certainly a connection between water with baptism, right, and then blood with communion, 
right? We get baptized in water, and then in communion, right, the wine or the juice represents the blood of Christ. And it makes sense that then that the believers who partake in these sacraments are like a testimony to the salvation that they have in Jesus, who is the Son of God. Um, so, you know, it, it's an interpretation which, you know, makes good sense, um, but there might be a couple issues that we run into when we look at this interpretation. Um, the first one being, Contextually, there's really not a lot of reference or really no reference to a believer's baptism or communion uh, in this passage or uh, in this epistle. And then secondly, John is presenting two witnesses with the water and the blood that provide evidence that Jesus is the Son of God. Right? So these witnesses then, they need to be, their testimony needs to be conclusive it needs to be indisputable proof that, yes, Jesus is the Son of God. Um, these need to be kind of like star witnesses uh, in their testimony. And, and again, um, a believer's baptism and communion are ways that maybe we may provide evidence that we believe in the truth about who Jesus is, but um, that's really just us saying that we believe who Jesus is. You know, but anyone can really believe it or say anything. Um, maybe our testimony might be might not be convincing enough. Uh, a second possible view um, is that the water and the blood refer to the death of Jesus when he was pierced with a spear, uh, if you remember, and blood and water flowed from his body. And now this is also a very logical conclusion, right? Since the pairing of water and blood are Kind of relatively obscure terms when they're put together. Um, the, really, the only other time it's used, uh, the only time other time when John uses it, um, besides this passage, is in his gospel. Right. So it's natural in our minds when we hear these two paired together, water and blood, that our minds would kind of make that connection. And if you recall, in John 19:34, it reads this: um, "But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood, blood and water came out." And he who has seen has testified, and the testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you also may believe. Now, if this is the case, right, then we want to know how this piercing of Jesus after his death by the soldiers proves that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Right? Well, you can argue that this event which John includes in his gospel, right? He says to point out uh, the certainty of Christ's death, which then really you would conclude then would point to the certainty of the resurrection is, of course, a powerful witness to the claim that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Right? He puts it right there in, verse, in the next verse, in verse 35. He's including this event so that you will believe. Uh, but the issue here is that uh, in our passage, uh, or yeah, in our passage, John isn't using the resurrection as the witness. Um, he's using the water and the blood. Now, the water and blood flowing from someone who has passed away, um, that can actually be a naturally occurring phenomenon. Um, and again, we're looking for conclusive, uh, even supernatural evidence from God proving once and for all that Jesus is the Son of God. Another barrier to this interpretation is that when you read verse 6 of our passage, John says, not by water only, but by water and blood. Right? It sounds like he's referring to two different events, right? The water being one and the blood being the other, and each of them having their own separate testimony. Uh, and then in the next verse, um, John says in verse 7 of our text that the three testified, right? The water, the blood, and the spirit, right? Which again indicates that we're most likely looking at three separate events or three separate witnesses. But in the case of the blood and water in John 19, right? They're both witnesses of the same event, either his death or by inference, um, his resurrection. So the water and the blood in this case would really just be one witness. Um, and then the third view then 
is that the water refers to the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist, uh, and then the blood to the death of Jesus on the cross. Um, and before we kind of go into this explanation, um, if you guys remember, you know, Gnosticism in general, right, the spiritual being good and the physical being bad, one component of Gnostic teaching at this time, uh, which was espoused by a guy named Serinthus, um, taught that the spirit of the divine Christ descended upon Jesus, the man at his baptism, but then left before his death on the cross. And that means that the Jesus who was baptized is not the same Jesus that was crucified because the baptized Jesus was divine, but the death of Jesus on the cross was just the death of a mere man. Right? And so this would be contrary, this type of teaching um, would be contrary to numerous passages in scripture that attest that Jesus and his work on earth was done by the Son of God. Right? I mean, um, just to go through them very, just a few very quickly, Romans 5-10, uh, Colossians 1, 13-20, Colossians 2, 8-10, all testify uh, as Jesus being the Son of God, uh, Jesus and his work being the Son of God. Even in John's Gospel, and John reveals or records um, Jesus saying that God loved the world so much that he gave who? He gave his only begotten Son. Uh, and then in his epistle, um, just one chapter earlier in 1 John 4.10, he says that God sent who? His Son to be the propitiation of our sins. So back to the water and the blood. Um, if you take the water and the blood to mean two unique events in the life of Jesus, um, his baptism and his death, uh, then it would fit the suggestion that John is writing against this specific Gnostic heresy, right? This teaching of Serenthus. Because the proof that Jesus is the Son of God doesn't just lie in his baptism, right, which the Gnostics would agree, um, but also in his death which is opposite uh, to uh, what the Gnostics would teach. Right? The spirit is good and the physical is bad. Right? God would not inhabit the form of a man and be allowed to be crucified and suffer this type of death. That's just not something that one who is spirit and good would do. But, that's my, but that might be why when we look back at verse 6 in our passage, he says, not just with water only, but with water and the blood, right? Not with just the water only Gnostics, right? We're saying that it's with the water and the blood. So these two events are, as we see, two, we will see two supernatural events in history that testify to the sonship of Jesus, right? This is kind of like the two bookend markers of his ministry, his baptism and his death and the baptism uh, in the beginning and then his death at the end. And, you know, whichever view um, you take, uh, John's conclusion is the same. Right? John doesn't explicitly say the water is this and the blood is that. Um, so we're left to do the interpretation. Um, we don't have the privilege of that type of certainty, but we can almost be assured that, you know, it was very clear. Well, it's obviously very clear to John, but also very clear to his readers, you know, what, they would have been, and they would have been uh, perfect testimonies to uh, who Jesus is. Um, but I believe um, that Jesus' his baptism and his death on the cross uh, are what's represented by the water and the blood. And these are the two witnesses that John is presenting. Okay. So now, if we head back into our courtroom, right, this is what the people need to know. Right? Can you trust without any doubt that Jesus is the Son of God? So John will call up his first witness, right? So he calls up the water, which we'll say is Jesus' baptism. And Jesus' baptism is recorded in all the Gospels, um, but we'll um, take a look first at the Matthew account, and that's found in Matthew chapter 3. Um, if you're familiar with John the Baptist, right, and you guys most likely are, right, he's the forerunner for Jesus. Uh, he came before Jesus to prepare 
people for his coming, right? And his message and his baptism was the Messiah is coming and you need to repent. And you need to be ready to receive him when he comes. Right? Then in verse 13 of chapter 3, Jesus arrives and we see what happens when he gets baptized by John. John the Baptist. We see the Spirit descend from heaven and descend upon Jesus in the voice of God the Father saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then in John's account in his gospel, uh, when he's recalling this event, he's saying that uh, for John the Baptist, this sign was for John the Baptist so that John the Baptist would know that this Jesus that he's baptizing truly is the Son of God. So here, in our witness of the baptism, we have this miraculous event. Not only do we have the visible manifestation of the Spirit coming upon Jesus, but we also have the voice of God the Father himself declaring that this Jesus who is being baptized is his Son, and he is pleased with him. So that's our first witness. Our second witness, then, that John wants to bring up is the blood, which we're interpreting as Jesus' death. So what testimony does the death of Jesus provide, or how does it prove that Jesus is the Son of God? Well, you can simply look at the miraculous events that happened um, during the time of his death. And for that, um, we can turn back to Matthew chapter 27, there in verse 45. Uh, we see that Jesus is hanging on the cross. And for the last three hours of his life, it's the middle of the day. Right? It's the exact middle of the day around noontime. And at noontime, right, there is darkness. Right? There's darkness over the land. It's the middle of the day when the sun should be shining its brightest. And you can say, well, you know, maybe there was some sort of eclipse that covered you know, the land at the exact time that Jesus was dying. But then, the moment that Jesus yielded up his spirit, it says in verse 50, um, the following events occurred. One, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Right? And this is the veil of the temple. Uh, you know, I don't want to get into potentially how big it is, um, but we're looking at a significantly large veil. Right? We're not you know, we're not thinking of a shower curtain or a window curtain, right? This is something that covers uh, the innermost parts of the temple. And it's not a very thin, uh, not a very thin type of veil or curtain either. It's something that most believe is at least a few inches thick, right? So that veil was torn from top to bottom the moment that Jesus died. Uh, we also see that the earth shook and the rocks were split. And if all of those testimonies were not enough, uh, it says that many of the saints who had died were brought back to life. And they weren't just brought back to life, but they entered into the holy city and appeared to many. So we have dead coming to life, walking into the city, and people viewing those who have been raised from the dead just walking around in their city the moment that Jesus died. All right, so these four supernatural events occurring at the death of Jesus, again, give us conclusive evidence that is so undeniable that even if we look at that passage, the centurion, and not just him, but those who were guarding Jesus, attested that truly this was the Son of God. So we have two witnesses. Is the water and the blood, and then we have John's third witness, right? This is John's last witness. So if the events of Jesus' baptism and death were not evidence enough, here John brings the testimony of God himself, right? The Spirit. Right? And John adds here in verse 6 that the Spirit is truth, meaning everything about the Spirit is truthful, so that means whatever he says must be believed. So uh, one way to think about maybe how does the Spirit then testify uh, to Jesus as the Son of God, uh, we can think about it maybe in three ways. Uh, 
Uh, again, these are just very brief ways you can study the work of the Holy Spirit forever. Uh, in, but here are just three ways um, that the Spirit testifies about Jesus Christ being the Son of God. Uh, you can start with Jesus' life and ministry. Uh, you can begin with his conception uh, in Luke chapter 1. Uh, we also witness his baptism, how the Holy Spirit is Jesus. Right? And we hear the words of John the Baptist saying that the Spirit was remaining upon him. And then you see, interestingly, in Luke chapter 4, 14, um, that Jesus, when he returned to Galilee, uh, returned in the power of the Spirit. And then in verse 18 there, he is preaching and he's quoting Isaiah 62 too, I believe. And the Spirit, he says, uh, it says the Spirit was anointing Jesus to preach. Right? His teaching, uh, Jesus' teaching, and his works were powered by the Spirit. Secondly, Jesus, or secondly, the Spirit testified to Jesus concerning his disciples, or through his disciples. And if you remember, uh, before Jesus is taken away uh, in the upper room, after the upper room, in the upper room, as Jesus is speaking to his disciples, um, in John 15, 26, 27, he says this, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of Truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. And you will also testify. And you will testify also because you have been with me from the beginning. Right? And then um, Jesus, after Jesus ascends into heaven, we have the event of Pentecost. If you remember, uh, once and at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit fills the apostles and they began testifying and preaching under the power of the Holy Spirit, even in tongues, so that all those who were there could hear in their own language. And then later in Acts chapter 5, Peter then says, after being released from prison, uh, if you remember, he says this, he says, the God of our, this is verse 30, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And in verse 32, we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Through the Holy Spirit, not just the apostles, but we are his witnesses too. Right? We are a testimony to the risen Savior. And so, uh, just as an aside, um, I hope maybe we can ask ourselves this, you know, are we a truthful witness to the saving power of the Son of God, right? We have been given the Spirit who is truth, so we have a responsibility to be a proper witness. So that is just something um, for us to kind of consider uh, since we do have the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. But certainly the Holy Spirit was also at um, dwelling within the apostles, and you can see the works of the apostles all throughout Acts testifying to the words of Jesus, and you can see how the church just grows through the power of the Spirit. And then lastly, the Holy Spirit testifies about the Son of God through Scripture. Right? 2 Peter 1, 20, 21. Right? For this, but we know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Right? All of Scripture, including all the prophecies about Christ, are divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit then directly through the Scriptures themselves point us to Jesus as the Son of God. So in verse 7, John says we have, for there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And all three Right, or the three are in agreement. That's verse 7. The three are in agreement. That's what John says. Right? They have all testified, and their testimony is all the same. Right? They all corroborate the truth of the person and nature of Jesus Christ. Right? They form an impeccable and conclusive argument that this Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God. Right? He was the Son of God in the beginning, and he was the Son of 
God at the end. Right? He is the perfect Messiah, and he is the only perfect and acceptable Savior for mankind. Right? God the Father himself attested his approval of Jesus as such at his baptism and at his death on the cross. And you have the Holy Spirit providing the exact same testimony as the one who was empowering Jesus throughout his earthly ministry and testifying about Christ through his disciples, his apostles and his disciples throughout the age of the church and then also through the scriptures. Now, just as an aside, uh, in some versions of some Bibles, like the King James Version, um, there is this added I guess you can say verse. Um, other Bibles have it as a footnote, and you'll see that it reads something like this. Um, so there are three that testify, and then uh, in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, all, and these three are one, and they are three that testify on earth. And it says, um, this, and, then it came, and then it goes on, the Spirit and the water and the blood, um, and the three are in agreement. So there's this kind of like extra verse that's in there um, that some of you might have. And you might wonder, well, how did this get in here? And why is it in some versions and not the other? Um, well, really briefly, uh, in a lot of the older manuscripts of the Bible, um, those which scholars tend to conclude are more reliable, um, this section or this passage isn't found. Um, you don't really see it at all um, quoted by any of the early church uh, or in the days of the early church by any of the church fathers. Uh, you really don't see it until a little later on, maybe like around the fourth century or so. Um, so it's very possible that um, this this verse or this yeah, this footnote here may have been added in the margins of some later manuscripts and uh, may have been carried over uh, in time uh, where it kind of made its way actually into the passages itself. Um, but you don't really need to worry um, from what we read. It, there's really nothing wrong. Um, there's nothing you know, um, that's inaccurate about the statement. Uh, it's basically just identifying the, t the Trinity and the Trinity testimony and their testimony on Earth. Um, but generally, the evidence or most evidence kind of supports um, that this statement is not in the original text. So just in case, if you saw that and were wondering. Um, but back to our passage. All right, so we have the three that testify, the spirit, the water, and the blood. They're all in agreement. And then verse 9 says, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. Uh, for the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his son. So again, John presented his three witnesses, and after examining each one, uh, we see that they're all in agreement with one another. Right. So you can kind of call verses 7 and 8 uh, the harmony of the witnesses. Uh, and then here in verse 9, uh, we have what, I can, what you can call the quality of the witnesses. So this is kind of, um, you can say maybe John's closing statement. Right? And just for some background about the testimony of men, right? if you look back in the Old Testament, right, God had rules in the law that constituted for what an adequate witness would look like. So if you look at verses like Deuteronomy 17.6, it reads this, On the evidence of two or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. And it says, the law says something similar in Deuteronomy 19. Right? A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. So you see, in order for a testimony to be legally accepted, there needed to be at least two or three witnesses, um, and then only then could a charge be confirmed. Right, so, if you want the testimony of men, right, well, um, you can look at the water and the blood, right? In terms of the baptism, you have John the Baptist proclaiming that Jesus is the Son of God because he what he witnessed at his baptism. 
and then at Jesus' death, you've got the centurion along with the others who really don't have any motivation to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, uh, but because of the supernatural events that they witnessed surrounding his death, right, they were left to proclaim that Jesus is the Son of God. And then if you want, you've got the Apostle John himself, who testified at the very beginning, right, that he is one who has heard, he has seen, he has touched the word of life. He has touched eternal life itself in Jesus Christ. So if John wanted to, right, he legally has the precedent to use the testimony of three men to establish his case. Right, all of those witnesses are all credible. They're all reliable. Right, you've got an apostle. You've got what Jesus called the greatest prophet. Uh, and then you have uh, a Roman centurion. All credible witnesses. But John doesn't use them, right? Even though he could have, because he has three testimony of the testimony of three men, right? But what gives us greater conviction, right, is that the testimony that John decides to give us, right, the three witnesses come from God Himself, right? This testimony isn't just greater. It's sure and it's absolute, right? As it says in Hebrews 6, 18, right, it is impossible for God to lie, right? So it's no surprise then that John calls the spirit the truth, right? There's no higher authority. John can summon to testify to Jesus being the son of God other than God himself. And so the last, so that's the testimony. Uh, and lastly, we come to the verdict, and this is verses 10 through 12. Right? The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. So the testimonies are complete. Like the closing statement or argument has been made. Now all that's left is the verdict. So normally, right, when the witness testifies, right, they're either testifying to the guilt or the innocence of the defendant. Um, but our three witnesses here, right, they're testifying to the actual person and nature of Jesus Christ. Right? But in reality, the person and nature of Jesus Christ, that has really never been up for debate. Right? Jesus is who he is, and God is who he is. So Jesus can't be on trial here, right? So then we can only conclude that we, along with the rest of the world, we are the ones who are on trial. It's not Jesus. Because whether someone believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, Son of God or not, right, that doesn't change the fact that Jesus actually is the Son of God. Right? You don't get to determine who Jesus is, but who you believe Jesus is does determine forever who you are. Right? If you think back to the end of Jesus' life, right? you guys remember his trial? Right? You can read his account in Matthew 26 and Mark 14. Right? After Jesus was arrested, right, he was brought to the high priest and to the leaders. When you look back on that trial, there were just so many things wrong with it, right? Meeting in the middle of the night, right? false witnesses trying to present a case, right? This is what it says in Mark 14, um, and it starts in verse 55. I'll read from there. Now, the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death, and they were not finding any. For many were giving false testimony against him, but their testimony was not consistent. 
Some even stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. And then verse 59 it says, Not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. And then verse 61, Again the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. Tearing his clothes, the high priest said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Some began to spit at him and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fists and to say to him, Prophesy. And the officers received him with slaps in the face. Right? This is what happens when man tries to put Jesus on trial. Right? Everything is a lie. Their testimonies are a lie. Their verdict, who they determine God to be, that's a lie. Right? And when they ask Jesus straight to his face, are you the son of God? And God himself says, yes, I, God, am God, right? they say, no, you're not. Right? You're a blasphemer and you deserve death. And they spit in the face of God. And even the thought that they have the right to say who God is, that's also a lie. Right? And in doing all of this, right, they, it seems like they're convicting Jesus to death, but really, they're only convicting themselves, right? They're revealing to God and to everyone who sees this that the truth is not in them, right? All these lies prove that they are not born of God, right? They are born of the devil, who is what, right? He is called the father of lies. And their sentence then, uh, as we see, is eternal death. If we turn to John chapter 8, right, this is what Jesus says. This is what John records Jesus saying of people who are unwilling and incapable of believing in who Jesus is. This is John chapter 8, and this is, this is Jesus himself saying about these people who, who do not believe. And this is verse 44. Or I'll start with verse 43. He says, why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. If you, were, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the word of God. For this reason, you do not hear them, because you are not of God. And that just sounds like exactly what John is saying, right? John is saying that if you do not believe in the testimony of God, then you have made him a liar, or you are calling him a liar. But in fact, really, those who deny the true nature of Jesus Christ, those who deny his work on the cross, those who deny that he is God, they only condemn themselves, and they make themselves out to be a liar. And they prove who their father really is. But they are not born of God like those who believe, right? They are born of the devil. But John says that there's another way, right? John says that I have the witnesses to tell the truth, and they tell the truth because these witnesses are God himself who is the truth, right? This is the assurance that you have for eternal life, because it comes from God who cannot lie. This hope we have in our Savior for the forgiveness in our sins, uh, for our sins and eternal life, 
right? It's just like as we sung earlier, um, and it's in Hebrews 6.19, right? This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, right? A hope both sure and steadfast, which enters within the veil, right? It enters within the veil. And it enters within the veil because the veil is gone. It was torn. That was the testimony at Jesus' death. There is no need for the veil anymore because in verse 20, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever. Jesus went through because he didn't need a veil, right? Because he's God himself. And because of his work, we don't need the veil either. Right? We can approach God directly ourselves. We have that confidence to approach the throne of grace. And that's the assurance that God gives us. It's the promise that God gives us. And we can rest on that promise because it says he cannot lie. And the witnesses of God tell the truth. His baptism, his death, and the Spirit himself all testify that Jesus is the Son of God. So, brothers and sisters, then you must be sure that Jesus is the Christ. And the world that we are in will and wants to shake your faith. Right? It's going to call you to live the way it wants you to live. It's going to call you to believe what it believes. Right? But you, as a child of God, you who are born of God, you cannot and you will not. Right? While everyone else is being blown in whichever direction the wind seems to blow, you will be like a tree that is planted firmly by the water. And you will continue to do what God has commanded you to do. And you will continue to love him. And you will continue to love one another. You will continue to obey him because you are fully convinced that you are born of God and that you have overcome the world. So let's pray. Uh, dear God, uh, we just thank you for your word. Um, and we thank you for your witness and your testimony. We thank you that um, you are a God of truth. We thank you that through your son that we have a priest, a priest that will speak for us, a priest that loves us, that would die for us, and that through him, we have eternal life and eternal fellowship with you. And we pray that um, if there are any times that we may doubt uh, our faith in you, that you would strengthen us and give us courage through the witness and the testimony of the water, the blood, and of the Spirit. We thank you for saving us. We thank you for keeping us. In your son's name we pray. Amen.